So you can be ready to follow along with the scripture this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And as you're finding Mark chapter 8, verse 1, I'll tell you a little brief story to introduce what we're talking about today. A while back, I think it was maybe two years ago, I was driving the kids to school. We go down Albemarle Road, this way to Locust, and um, I had Elias and Lillian with me in the car, and we were ahead, we're getting close to the the main intersection, 601 and Albemarle Road, this way, and on one of the side roads, Elias said, Dad, I just saw a truck wreck into the ditch. And I looked around, and he, he said it happened on uh, one of those little side roads that's on the right there. I've never been down that road. I can't remember the name of it. He said, I saw a red truck skid into that ditch over there. And I looked around. I could still kind of see the ditch. I didn't see anything, and Lillian didn't see anything. And, and it, was, it was one of those mornings where we were not late, but perhaps if we got caught by that light at 601, we might end up being late. And I had things to do right after drop-off. I needed to get back up here. I had things to do. And so Elias said, we need to turn around and go see what happened. And so the factors that played into me deciding not to turn around were, I didn't see it happen. I wasn't entirely sure he was right. Maybe the truck was just parked over there and he thought he saw it. I wasn't sure that there was even an accident. Two, if it was an accident on that side road, surely people coming to work, you know, on that side road would be much more in, in much better position to stop and help than me. And three, we were going to be late if I stopped. So I decided instead of me, you know, finding a way to t- do a U-turn, come back around, see what was going on, and then depending on what's going on, come turn all the way back around, make them late, have to instead of just dropping them off, have to park and walk them in and fill out the tardy stuff and then make me late for my next stuff, I decided, no, we're just going to keep going. Now, Elias, this was a couple years ago, in his childlike simplicity, he could not understand that decision. And it bothered him. And he asked me about it. Long after that, he would say, you know, I still wonder what happened to the guy in that truck. And I still don't understand why we didn't turn around. And his reasoning was very sound. We're Christians. And I'm sure Rhonda had probably taught them in there the Good Samaritan story. I know he's read it in his Bible. We're Christians. We're supposed to be caring. We're supposed to be concerned. We're supposed to be compassionate. We're supposed to turn around. And you know, I think he's right. I regret to this day that I didn't turn around and give him a better example of what a Christian ought to do in that situation, because Christians are supposed to be compassionate. We're supposed to be compassionate because our God is compassionate. And His Son, Jesus Christ, is compassionate. And through Jesus, we have received ridiculous compassion from God. So we're just filthy rich with compassion, just we can dole it out endlessly. So I should have turned around, I didn't, but at least it gave me a good story to introduce this sermon. And hopefully, if there was a guy in a red truck, I hope that he ended up being okay. Um, so somebody in here is probably thinking, that was me. That jerk didn't turn around. We're going to see today God's compassion displayed in Jesus Christ. And we'll look at it in three subheadings to help you follow along the train of thought. Who Jesus helps, how Jesus helps, 
and who Jesus rejects. Who Jesus helps, how Jesus helps, and who Jesus rejects. And I'll wager that some of us in here are in desperate need of this kind of help, this kind of compassion that we're going to be talking about today. Um, Divine compassion from God through Jesus Christ. Maybe in the practical details of your life, you feel acutely the need for some, some gentle compassion from God. Or maybe in the deeper levels of your soul, you're feeling parched and dry and weary and you need compassion from God. I'll also wager that there's probably some of us in here who need to be confronted with sin in our lives that might be hindering us from receiving that compassion. We're going to talk about all those things this morning. I'd like to begin just by reading the passage together. This is Romans 8, 1 through 13, and then we'll pray for God to instruct us in his word. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, And they had nothing to eat. He, referring to Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, it's so rich and and full, and it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces down to the division of of joint and and bones and marrow and spirit and soul. Lord, I pray that it would do that work in our hearts today. That as we read your word, that, that you would be revealed to us, that we would see you with greater clarity, and that we would be revealed to ourselves that we would understand ourselves and our world with greater clarity. And that in that process, we would be transformed as our minds are renewed. We would grow to look more like Jesus Christ, to become the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So, point number one, who Jesus helps. Did this story seem familiar to you as we read it? 
Now, you know, my desire would be to work through in sermons a book just nonstop without interruption. Remember Romans? I love that. Okay, but so that I don't wear you out, I've kind of broken them up. But had we been going through Mark from start to finish without interruption, this would have seemed extremely familiar because just back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus did almost the exact same thing. The the two stories are so similar. Great crowd, desolate place, didn't bring food. Jesus has compassion. Disciples don't don't know what to do or what's going to happen. Jesus miraculously feeds thousands upon thousands of people and then leaves. You guys remember that in Mark chapter 6? That was probably back at, at Christmas time last year, I think, that we studied that. Um, why two miracle feeding stories like this so close? Well, we know that Jesus did a lot of miraculous things that could not be contained in the Scriptures. Uh, one of the writers said, kind of hyperbolically, that if they tried to contain everything Jesus said and taught, it would fill up all the books in all the world. So it could be that he did more than just two miraculous feedings of thousands. But why did the Holy Spirit inspire Mark to include these two stories so close to each other too? Well, we get a hint at it in verse 1. Verse 1 begins, In those days. In those days. Figuring out what days he's talking about is going to help us understand the significance of the two feeding stories. And it's going to help us understand Jesus' compassion too. So we need to go all the way back to the beginning. God created humanity to worship and enjoy Him forever. Adam and Eve sinned, thus separating themselves and as representatives of all humanity, all humanity from God. Okay, so when sin entered the world, a huge problem entered the world with it. Humanity was separated from God, rebellious against God. Um, It was a hostile, alienated relationship with God. Now, a little bit after that in Genesis, you see God select a man, a man named Abraham. Okay, With Abraham, he makes a covenant, and I'll read you the covenant because it's going to help you to understand. This is in Genesis 12. Uh, We'll read verses 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, That's Abraham before his name got changed to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember that phrase. But the big idea here for right now in the sermon is that all of humanity is separated from God and God reaches down and picks Abraham and says, from you I'm going to establish a special people that are going to be my people. Okay, this was the beginning of the people of Israel. And then all through the Old Testament, it's the story of God and his relationship with his special people, Israel, the Jews. Now, if God has a special chosen people, Israel, that means that everybody who's not Israel is not a part of God's special chosen people. Okay? All these people outside of Israel are known as Gentiles. Gentile is kind of a literal translation, or, or a, um, the word escaped me, but it, it's, uh, 
maybe transliteration is the word, when they take the Hebrew word and just put it right into English, it almost creates a new English word. Literally, it means nations and people groups. But it always refers to the people that are not Israel. <clears throat> the people outside of the God's special covenant with Abraham for all of his descendants are the Gentiles. So throughout all this history, God gives the Jewish people all of his commands and all of his ordinances, over 600 commands in the scripture that the Jewish people have. And generally speaking, they take those commands very, very seriously, especially commands about worshiping only God. You know, we see them mess up throughout their history, but that's important to them. Meanwhile, the Gentiles don't have that command, and they're worshiping idols like crazy. And so over time, Israel began to view the Gentiles as just being filthy and unclean people. They worship idols. They, they embrace all kinds of pagan practices, and they are unclean. And, and they're right in many ways. But because of that perception, Israel and the Gentiles, the Jews and Gentiles, they did not mix. Okay, the Gentiles didn't like Israel. Israel didn't like the Gentiles. They didn't mix. Now, add to that the fact that I'm getting ahead of myself. Getting ahead of myself. To give you an idea of how much some Jewish people dislike the Gentiles, here's a quote from a Jewish rabbi of the first century around the time that this is going on in Mark. He said, the best of the Gentiles deserve to be killed. Right? That's how much they look down on Gentile people. Even the best of them still deserves to just be killed. They're so unclean, so filthy. Now, when we read in those days, in chapter 8 of Mark, we have to look back to figure out what days he's referring to. And we see that these are the days in which Jesus and his disciples are traveling around the Decapolis. That's back in Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Okay, I'm getting somewhere with this. I know this is like history, and you guys are thinking, I lost an hour of sleep last night, and he's given me a history lesson. But this is really important. The Decapolis is mainly Gentile territory. There are some Jews living there, but primarily it was well known this was Gentile territory. The disciples were probably wondering, what are we even doing out here? These are not our people. We're among the unclean pagan Gentiles now. It was in those days that what we just read takes place. Now, why the two stories? The feeding of the thousands in Mark chapter 6 takes place in Jewish territory. That was their people. The feeding that we just read in 8, Mark chapter 8, is Gentile territory. Now, way back when God made his, co his covenant with Abraham, the very last bit of it was, through you, all the families or all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And I don't know if they ever fully understood what that was going to mean. But we know, looking back, that Jesus, as the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, was going to come not just for the Jewish people, but for all people, including the religiously filthy, unclean, pagan, idolater Gentiles. Which, by the way, includes us. Unless you are of Jewish descent, you're a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. And interestingly enough, 
we have a lot of evidence to believe that the Gospel of Mark was written to Gentile believers. So I think when Mark was telling this story, he was saying, this is you guys. Jesus even did this miracle for you guys. Who do you think of as the opposite of Christianity? Who do you think of, and this is a rhetorical question, so just think about it, don't shout it out. Who do you think of as being the antithesis of everything that Christianity values? Who do you think of that in light of what we hold to be good in Christianity is just bad? In light of everything we hold to be clean in Christianity is just filthy. Okay, whoever these people are, okay, maybe they're people who are, who are of, of opposite religions. Maybe they're people who the sins that they struggle with and embrace are different from the sins that you struggle with and embrace. Maybe these are people of the opposite political leaning. Maybe this is people of opposite parts of the world. I don't know what comes to your mind. Okay, for Jesus to have gone where he went performing this miracle, is the same as us taking a mission trip and going deep into the territory of whoever these people are that came to your minds. Okay, this would have been pretty shocking to the disciples. And it's important for us to understand. The feeding in Mark 6 was Jewish territory. Mark 8 was Gentile territory because Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise long ago that God had a blessing for all the families of the earth in store. So this question under our first heading was, who does Jesus help? And the answer is, anybody. Who is is God compassionate toward through Jesus Christ? Anybody. Now note, I didn't say everybody. I said anybody. Because not everybody is going to receive that compassion. We're going to talk about that on the last point. But anybody is eligible for it. Any one of you, no matter what secrets you may hold, is eligible for the compassionate help and love and concern of God through Jesus Christ. And then anybody in your life, anybody that you know, anybody that you encounter this week, anybody that you see on the news, on your Facebook feed, anybody is under the umbrella of God's available love and compassion and kindness. No one is out of reach. No one is out of reach of God's compassion through Jesus Christ. So that's who Jesus helps, how Jesus helps. As we read on in Mark chapter 8, we see two facets to God's compassion through Jesus Christ. The first one is that Jesus is compassionate about the practical, physical issues of daily life. Jesus is compassionate about the practical, physical issues of just being a human being. Let's read together starting at verse 2. Read verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. This crowd of Gentiles. I have compassion on them. I feel deeply in my guts. You remember we're talking about what compassion means back when we did Mark 6? It has to do with like your innards. It's a very physical word. It's like gut-wrenching. I really care about these people. And incidentally, this is the only time that Jesus says he has compassion. Back in Mark 6, it was noted that he had compassion, but here he verbalizes it. Disciples, I want you to know I have compassion on these people. Because they have been with me now three days 
So think about where you were three days ago at this hour. I'm not going to tell you what time it is because then you're going to start thinking, when's he going to wrap it up? Roughly 11.30, three days ago, so that was Saturday, Friday, Thursday. Just think about, okay, from wherever you were then to now, being with Jesus out in a desolate place. Have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Okay, so three days, maybe they brought some provisions, but they've consumed it all. And now they're out in a desolate place and they don't have anything to eat. Have any of you parents ever gone out somewhere and did not bring sufficient rations for your children? And then you hear them say, I'm hungry. And you're like, oh, great, again? I just fed you. It's sort of the scene here only multiplied by a billion times. Thousands of people out in the middle of nowhere with nothing to eat. And Jesus feels this fatherly parental compassion for them. The same as a parent would for their child at, at the mall or wherever when they're, when they're hungry. And then he goes on, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. So Jesus is thinking about these people. And he's not just thinking about their souls, he's thinking about their bodies. He's thinking about their rumbling stomachs. And he's thinking, you know, I know a lot of these people came from quite far away. I can't just send them home. They'll faint. He's very considerate here, isn't he? Some of them have come from far away. We see here in Jesus Christ the character of God and his compassion for people. Remember that psalm that that I read at the beginning where it said that God, like a father, is compassionate toward his people. And it says because he knows our frame, which means he knows how we're made. He understands that our bodies get tired. He understands that our eyes get weary if we've been awake too long, reading too much, straining our eyes. He understands that our muscles ache when we've been working hard. He understands when we need sleep. He understands when we need food. And he cares. Whatever the practical details of your current daily situation are, he cares. And we know from Hebrews that Jesus is the exact image of God. So if you ever want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. And here we see this really tender, thoughtful compassion. And we know something else about Jesus that's really important. Later in Hebrews, it says that we do not have a high priest, a high priest, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands because what makes Christianity really unique is that we're not just humans trying to do better and be better to please God. We're humans who are astounded by the fact that God came down to be one of us in Christ. It's called the incarnation. And so he literally knows what it's like to be a human. And he cares. He cares about your struggle with whatever physical addiction it may be. He cares that you're stressed out because you don't know how to navigate this relational situation. He cares about your depression, your anxiety, your exhaustion. He cares. But there's more than that. I said there's two senses that we see God's compassion here, and that's just one of them. The second one is we see His compassion for people's souls. The deepest, deepest part of you. Let's keep reading, starting at... um, Verse 
verse 4. And his, his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now, obviously the, the big thing that we want to talk about here is the miracle. The miraculous divine power of Jesus Christ. But, I actually going to set that aside. I want to invite you to meditate on that in your own devotions, maybe this afternoon in some quiet time. Read back through this and think about it from that angle. What I want to talk about is Jesus' compassion for the souls of people that I think is displayed and foreshadowed here. There's something mysterious going on with this bread. Just like there was when we read back in Mark chapter 6. There's something more to it than meets the eye. Remember when we studied Mark 6, after this miraculous feeding of the thousands, there's that miracle in which Jesus walks on water, and He just walks up to the disciples who are in a boat and hops in, and it says down in chapter 6, verse 51 and 52, And the disciples were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So there's something they weren't getting about this whole Jesus bread thing. And then here he does the same kind of miracle, and a little bit later we're going to read next Sunday, down in verse 16 of chapter 8. It says, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? There's something about this bread that they should have been getting that they weren't getting. They weren't understanding. So let's look back and see what it might be. It says there in verse 6, And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Could it be that this was foreshadowing what was to come in chapter 14, when Jesus is on the way to the cross? In 14.22, as Jesus and his disciples were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. Jesus explained in the Gospel of John what was behind his frustration with the people not understanding this bread miracle. And the idea is it was always meant to point beyond this bread in their hands to the bread of life that stood before them. He said, I'm the bread. 
I'm the bread of life, and anybody who comes to me will never hunger again. Anybody who comes to me will never thirst again. I care about you. I don't want you to be physically hungry. So here's this bread, but behind every physical act of compassion, love, provision that I give to you, behind every one of those is an eternal love, an eternal compassion. When I give you this physical bread, I don't just want you to be satisfied for a short time. I want you to come to me as the bread of life and be satisfied for eternity, forever. I am the bread of life. Jesus is bread sufficient, beyond sufficient, for your every need. Jesus is bread beyond sufficient for your every hunger. I mean, sometimes we feel like if I could just get past this physical ailment of mine, then I'll be satisfied. If I could just shake this cold, if I could just heal this issue, if I could just get the right doctor to give me the right prognosis so I get the right medication, then I'd be satisfied. Jesus offers soul satisfaction that can secure and enable you even to live through medical issues. We feel like if we could just get our our family or this relational discord settled, then we'd be satisfied. Then we'd be at peace. Jesus offers satisfaction and peace beyond that that can even inhabit you in the midst of that. We feel like if I could just establish myself in the American dream, then I'd be satisfied, then I'd be at peace. If I just had the nicer car, the nicer house, I just had the put-together wardrobe. I just had a bit more in the bank account. Then I would be secure. Then I would be at peace. And often God does bless us with these things. Heals us. Gives us good doctors. Gives us a wise word in a relational crisis. Brings about forgiveness. Gives us provision beyond just our bare necessities to the luxuries of life that we enjoy here. But those were never just meant to be blessings in of themselves. They were always meant to point us to the bread of life. And no one is out of reach of God's compassion through Jesus Christ, the bread of life. Yet, some will reject Him and be rejected by Him. Which brings us to our last point. Who Jesus rejects. So after this miracle that we just read, in verse 11... The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now that may seem like a bit of a harsh response to these guys, or maybe it doesn't, depends on how you read the passage at first. But remember, this is not Jesus' first interaction with these people, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite in the Jewish religious system. Okay, And all through Jesus' ministry up to this point, the Pharisees have been there primarily questioning Him. Who are you to say you can forgive sins? Why are you eating with sinners? Why are your disciples not fasting? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath by healing this guy? 
Why are you guys ignoring the traditions, our Jewish traditions? They're always there. They're always questioning, and, and they grow increasingly hostile toward Jesus Christ to the point where we, we read a few chapters back that they had actually entered in with some political people into a plot to kill Jesus or destroy him. So when they come to him asking this, they've already made up their mind. They've already entered a plot to destroy Jesus. They're not genuinely there saying, if you can do just one more sign, then I'll believe. They're there hoping to trick him, trap him, expose him as a fraud, destroy him. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus rejects them. Jesus doesn't say, you might expect him to say, guys, I know what's going on in your heart, but I love you. I want you to come on my side here. Stop, stop hounding me. Come, be one of my disciples. He doesn't say that. He's really frustrated with them. He sighs deeply, which is like he's physically pained by this frustration with these people. And he just rejects them. And this generation is kind of a sweeping phrase that it just means all you people know. I'm not going to give you any signs. I just miraculous, miraculously fed thousands of people. I could give you a sign right now, but I'm not going to give you a sign right now. And he gets in the boat and he leaves them. So what's the core problem with these people that causes Jesus Christ, the very image of this amazingly compassionate God, who's compassionate in spite of our sin, to reject these people. Back in chapter 7, Jesus exposes a little bit of what's going on in their hearts. And I want to read that to you to help us understand. In chapter 7, verse 6, this is right after the, the Pharisees had come and challenged Jesus about why he and his disciples weren't following the traditions. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then a little bit later on, he's teaching about cleanness and uncleanness. And I think he still has the Pharisees in mind. When he says, hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I believe the problem with the Pharisees that caused them not only to reject Christ but to be rejected by Christ here is that they had encased themselves in an external religion and it immunized them. It immunized them from the ability to be humble toward Jesus Christ and His message. It hindered them from the ability to confess sin and repent, which is essential to becoming and being a Christian. And they were so hardened into their external religious system that they were always just a thorn in Jesus' side. 
And so he said, I'm not playing that game. We have to beware that outside religious appearance might negate our understanding of our need for God's compassion. See, for them, religion became a a means of self-righteousness. I'm more righteous than others because I do these religious things. It was not for them a means of accepting and receiving God's compassion. They didn't need God's compassion because they were righteous in their own eyes. Hypocritical religion will cause us to reject Christ and Christ to reject us. I think that's our greatest danger sitting in here, sitting in church this morning. Is that we will feel because we do these things, these Christian things, that we are righteous. And that we don't need God's compassion and we certainly don't need to offer compassion to others. Jesus is compassionate to anyone who will receive Him. Who will receive Him. And one of the most potent forces that work against people receiving Jesus Christ is hypocritical religion. We've got to beware of it. So who does Jesus help? He's willing to help anyone. How does Jesus help? Well, He he helps practical daily concerns, but beyond that and through that, soul concerns. Who does Jesus reject? Those who are so religiously self-righteous that they feel they need no help from God through Jesus Christ. I just have three little points of application in closing. One is for non-Christians. Anyone who may be among us as a non-Christian who might be uncomfortable with some of the religious trappings of Christianity, uncomfortable with all the singing and all the dressing up and going to church, the things we do. Anyone in that position, I want you to know that God, through Jesus Christ, wants to be compassionate to you. He wants to satisfy your deepest soul hungers. And I want to invite you to come and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And as your Savior and Lord, receive through Him God's compassion. Christians, I want to just invite you to enjoy the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Feed on Jesus and be satisfied. And get to work. Go break bread and share this compassion with others in this world who are so desperate for it. The essence of Christian love is compassion for those who really don't even deserve it. We need to go out into the world with this Christian love of the Gospel. And then for us as a church, Doolin's Grove Church, let us be a people of compassion like our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's help people with both practical needs of daily life. But more importantly, and maybe through that help, the deep needs of their souls. Needs of salvation and reconciliation with God. We're going to have a time of prayer now. And I want to to lead us into that time of prayer with that verse from Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's bow and pray together.